0: Thank you for listening to BLC Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more podcasts, news, and other events, please visit breakthroughlife.co.za. Hey, thank you for your well, warm welcome. You're too kind. Well, actually, you're not. I, I don't think there's such a thing as being too kind, is there? Can you be too kind, or too loving, or too generous? Can you be too forgiving? Do you think when you see him on that day face to face that he'll say, you helped too many orphans and widows in distress. What were you thinking? <laughs> you gave to too many beggars. No, in fact, God, he, he always affirms extravagant love, doesn't he? And we see it all over the Bible with uh, the woman with the alabaster vial just pouring it all out upon Jesus. And he himself poured out His love upon us. I mean, I, I, I suspect one drop of His blood could cleanse all the ills of the human race, but He poured it all out, didn't He? Yeah, so thank you for having me back. And, um, and I just want to begin with a, a rabbit trail. All right, because, I, yes, I've been in Mozambique. It's been a, a, a very difficult year with two Class Four cyclones blowing through. And sometimes when we're in the midst of it, uh, sometimes we're, we're preoccupied with our own testings and trials and 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 our own pain, and we un- I, I didn't know what was happening here right next door in South Africa. I didn't know that you had been through a drought and a dry time, and and in such times, I mean, they they really affect everybody. But sometimes we we're, we're just preoccupied with how they affect us. Uh, how many of you here are just like spiritually just? in a dry time, in, in a time where, you know, you're, you're just contending. And, um, and so this morning, you know, I was just talking with John and Lisa, and we, we were talking a little bit about that water that comes from the rock and how that rock is with us in the wilderness. And I, I, I was just thinking on the way here this morning about uh, Ezekiel 47, and it, it speaks of the temple of the Lord and God's presence there. And his presence, there was a pillar of fire and smoke. I mean, it was quite evident. There was a manifestation of his presence. But then in Israel's rebellion, uh, the presence of God left in, in Ezekiel chapter 10. So you still have the temple, but no presence there. And what good is that? I mean, the whole purpose of the temple is to host the presence of the Lord, isn't it? And it's the same with us. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we are made of the dust of the earth. And, and, and I want that. I go, God, I want your kingdom to come on this earth. And, 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 and we're, we're the body of Christ. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet sometimes, like Peter, the, we're, we're caught in a storm and the wind and the waves are blowing and, and we lose sight of Jesus, even though he's right there walking on the waves. And um, and that can be a scary time. But later in, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 47, we see the presence of God come back to the temple. And and in 47, I'm sure you, you've heard the story, uh, a man or an angel comes to Ezekiel and he shows him this river that is proceeding from the temple of God. And it's, it just starts as a trickle coming out from under the altar. And nothing flashy, nothing big, and it goes th- out to the threshold towards the east and it starts to travel through the wilderness but as it goes, it gets bigger and bigger. And it's the chapter where Ezekiel is first ankle deep. And then as he proceeds, it's knee deep and then hip deep. And, and, um, and sometimes the deeper we get into him in his presence, there's, there's a time when you're in the ocean or you're in a river and you can get in over your head and you can no longer control where you're going. The river takes you where it's going. And and sometimes that's scary, too, and and we want to step back because we want to keep control. And we want church on Sunday, but not on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We just, um, we want a little taste of, of the Lord, but not the full meal. We're afraid of what He might require of us. So... In this chapter 47, we see this river emerging, a mighty river, and it says everywhere the river goes through the wilderness, it brings life and refreshing, and trees grow up on each side of this river, and they bear fruit in every season, not just one annual harvest, but it's constantly bearing fruit. And the river then goes into the Dead Sea and brings the Dead Sea back to life again. I think that time is still coming. This is a vision that that, uh, Ezekiel has for a future time. The Dead Sea is, right now, it's about 35% salt. The ocean is 3.4% salt. So nothing grows there because salt sterilizes. And, um, And yet this river is so mighty. You think of all the rivers in the world. They cannot make the ocean sweet again. And yet this river makes the Dead Sea sweet again. And it says in this prophecy that every variety of fish in the Mediterranean is there. And I just sense that, that uh, this church, Breakthrough Church, is, is a watering hole. And... And yes, uh, there's difficult times economically here, or politically here, environmentally, and, and or just stress in your family, or your marriage, or disease that you're wrestling with. But there's a watering hole. And if we just get into His presence, it brings life into those barren places. Hey? And I think God's going to, I mean, break through life. How prophetic is that? Break through life. But it's stepping in and and don't just stick your toe in. I mean, that's better than nothing, hey? But just, uh, we can trust him. We can let him carry us wherever he will. It'll be a good place. It's not just carrying you to some place. It's carrying you away from some place. Away from your worries and your fretting and your fears. Yeah. So that's not what I was going to speak on at all. (laughs) That was my rabbit trail that I began with. But I, I just have a sense that there... As you worship the Lord and put Him first, because He is first and foremost in all things. He's not just the Alpha and the Omega. He's, he should be everything in between, right? I think that trickle is going to come out. It already has. It already has begun in your lives, apparently, and out through the threshold and through the dry places of this nation. And it's just going to grow and grow. you I go to some churches and they're going through the motions, but it's kind of dead. And, um, but that's not the case here. Even in the midst of, of some of your difficulties and trials, you are gathering together and you're setting those concerns aside. You're focusing on Him and worshiping Him. And that's where life happens. That's where abundance comes in and transformation and healing and restoration so, um, a while back, I, you know, I've, I've been in Mozambique about 20 years now, and pretty much I started with a, a baby clinic. I'm not even a baby person, you know, I'm, I'm single and I travel, and, and, uh, and yet that was the need at the time, because the poverty was so extreme, a lot of the mothers died. And if a mother was breastfeeding a baby, they would be, uh, bury the baby alive with the mother, because there was no other source of milk. It wasn't that they didn't love their kids just as much as we do. They didn't want that baby to starve to death. And, um, and so I started driving here to South Africa because you had milk here. And I would buy these big you know, 50 kilo bags of, of full cream powdered vitamin fortified milk in my truck and I would truck it back. And at the time I was just camping in, in a tribe my first several years there, I was camping uh, and just living with the people, as they did. And, and, and we had 10 kids, and then we had 50 kids, and then we had 100 kids, and then we had a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> now, we didn't, you know, mom dies, relative brings the baby to us, they said, put it in an orphanage. We didn't want to start an orphanage. And because then it's, it grows up in, uh, away from its language and culture, and when that child is 18 years old, he has to leave the orphanage, and he's not welcomed back into his community again. He doesn't have bush skills. And though he can read and write or maybe even know how to work a computer, he can't, you know, the girls don't know how to carry 50 pounds of water on their head or 50 pounds of wood. And, and so they fall, even though they grew up on a Christian orphanage, they fall through the cracks and they ended up in prostitution and crime. And so we go. Well, yeah, orphanage is certainly better than starving to death. But uh, if they end up starving to death anyway, what good is it? So what we did is we partnered with the relatives, and they bring us the baby and go, "Hey, that ain't my baby. That's your baby. (laughs) We will help you. If if you bring that child to us, we'll, we'll establish a clinic and we'll provide milk. We'll teach you how to wash the bottles and sterilize and boil the water and diaper the baby and and um, so they would appoint caregivers. It would be an auntie or a granny or a 12-year-old sister, and both parents are dead. And that sister is the head of the household now. And it's, so this, it just grew. And we got to 100 kids, and powdered milk and formula is expensive. It's expensive here, and then we have to pay duty on it and, and, and truck it all the way up into the bush where we were. So at 100 kids, we said, let's stop and just do the best we can with these children and not take any more. Well, as you might imagine, the next night, a granny comes out of the jungle with another infant in her arms, and mom had died. And we sent her away. We couldn't sleep all night because that was a death sentence to that child. And so in the morning, I mean, it was just three nurses and me, and we just said, hey, you know, God's big. Let's just take them all and see what God will do. And uh, we sent a runner out to go fetch Granny back. And uh, within just a few months, we had 900 children. And I'm glad I didn't know that when we had 100. Because they just came one at a time, you know. But, and, and our faith grew, and God made a way. And there's been desperate times when we were totally just down to our last little bag of milk and God provided. Or times I would come down to South Africa with money, glory, hallelujah, and there was no milk to buy. Because there was a drought and, you know, it just, that milk, there's, sometimes I would have to import it from other countries. But we have not missed one meal and over the last nine or ten years, we've fed over 7,000 babies. And... (laughs) and in in every village we save a child they're now wide open to the gospel and um, you save someone's baby and they love you and you know the muslims love us the christians love us the witch doctors love us the thugs in prison love us because we're saving their children and then they started growing as babies do so we started a preschool in the kindergarten And uh, we established ourselves. We actually bought land and began to develop right in a Muslim village. And we actually built our land on a mosque site. (laughs) And the children were leading the children to the Lord, the four, five, six, seven-year-olds, and they would go home and lead their parents to the Lord. And within a year, that village had come to Christ. Um, They still built a mosque, but it takes about a year with the rainy season to build a building out there. But by the time they finished the mosque, no one went to it. So it's still there. I'm thinking of buying it. But, uh, so, but as this program grew, my board began to have a panic attack because milk's expensive. and. And one of my board members, he he was a doctor in North America, and he came into relationship with this very wealthy man. He wasn't a Christian. Um, He was a a wine connoisseur. He would travel the world um, to compete with his wines. And he he wasn't a millionaire. He was a billionaire. And this is U.S. dollars we're talking about. Very wealthy. So... My board member wanted me, wanted me to meet with this man, but I was coming right out of the bush, and it was a season when these flies come out, and they, don't, they just don't bite. They take a little chunk out. I mean, you bleed and it leaves a hole. They're just wicked little things. So I'm all pot marked. <laughs> and my flight was late, so he picks me up at the airport, and I'm just disheveled, and I, mean, I, I look like I had the smallpox or something. <laughs> And takes me straight to this man's house. And he lived in a castle. He actually had built himself a castle. And there's this fabulous meal laid out. (laughs) It was eight courses. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an eight-course meal. (laughs) Because there's hors d'oeuvres, and then there's this and that, and then dessert and everything. And with every course, there was a, a glass of wine. And so... His chef would come out and explain, you know, what we were about to eat and then the ambiance of the wine. And I'm, you know, I don't really drink much. I don't think I've ever finished a whole glass, hardly. And so I take a sip, and I, and, but then the next course comes and another glass of wine and another glass of wine. And after a while, he says, don't you like the wine? And I says, oh, yes, it's wonderful, but I'm supposed to say something intelligent after this meal. And so I'm so sorry, I just I'll taste, but I I I can't drink all this wine. So at the end uh, of, of the meal, like I'm in such an inter- internal conflict because he's not a Christian. He's an older man and he has a mistress old enough to be his granddaughter. His lawyer is there who also has a mistress. None of them are saved. And my board member says, don't talk about Jesus. And I'm like, well then why did you bring me? <laughs> <laughs> because everywhere I go, they want to know what you did. And I have a wild life, okay? I, I've worked in 65 countries. I've been through seven coups, four revolutions. I was hostage for five months. I've been shipwrecked and shot at because I work in communist and Muslim countries and closed countries. It's, it's, it, and so the next question after what do you do is why do you do it? And so sure enough, this man... She wants to know what we're doing in Africa. And then why would you? Why would educated um, university graduate, nurses and teachers from first world countries leave their country of convenience and wealth and safety and security, their homeland and their family, leave marriage opportunities, leave the opportunity to have a family of your own, to go live as a squatter in a village in a tent, and brave the uncertainty and instability of a third-world nation. And so I started telling him about Jesus, much to the chagrin of my board member. And it made him very uncomfortable. Uh, Yeah, that was no surprise. But I said, like, Sir, just think, look at this table, the the cutlery, the silver, the, the gold, the art in the room, the chandelier. This fabulous meal, uh, the wine that, you know, wins awards all over the world. And um, everything was made with a purpose. This podium was made with a purpose. And, And these musical instruments, and when it's used for that purpose, all is well. The Bible says the sun, moon, and stars glorify God. Well, they're not even animate beings. How do they do that? They do what they were created to do. And that glorifies God. And when we do what we were created to do, it glorifies God, right? It says, you too were made with a purpose. And I see such restlessness when I go back to America, to my country, even though it's wealthy and free, but people aren't doing what they were created to do. The Bible says that God foreordained good works for us to do from before the foundations of the earth. Now, I'm 60 years old, and I've been thinking of myself for 60 years. But God has been thinking of me since before the foundations of the earth. And he designed me in such a way as to fulfill those purposes. But if I exchange his dream for my life, for the American dream, or for my dream, I'm going to be out of step with my very design. And there is such profound confusion in my culture right now. People don't even know what gender they are anymore. That's pretty bad. I'm a physician assistant. If you don't know what gender you are, meet me th- with me after church, I'll tell you. I'm really good at this. So I know. I know what I am, I know whose I am. And and I was speaking at this church in America, and I picked up this magazine in the airport, and it was at that time like 27 different genders. Like what? When I left America, there were only two. <laughs> And I was trying to catch up with the times. And I go to this church, and a lot of pastors are afraid to talk about homosexuality, about abortion, about the real issues of our day. And um, it's really difficult in some countries. So I'm speaking in this church, but I'm just a visitor, so I can get away with a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, wow, I picked up, showed them the magazine, I go, there's... What happened? I've only been gone of a year. And, and I said, well, in case, I was here a year ago, and I was a woman then. And now I'm here now, and I'm still a woman. In fact, I have always been a woman, and I always will be a woman. So if you're confused, come talk to me. I'll set this straight. It's not, that, it's not rocket science. all right? But it's, it's just because we are not doing what God designed us to do. And we're not being who He designed us to be. Uh, because of wounds in our life, because of abuse, for a hundred different reasons, and, and we lose our way. And, 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 and so, who are you? And whose are you? And there's only really two, if you get these two things right in life, it will go well with you. Who is Christ? And who are you in Christ? And you don't even have to go to part B. I mean, if you just know who Christ is, you will find who you are in him. Because you are in him. And it sorts out a a lot of that confusion. Even in those dark times. And so, I'm explaining to this this man. uh, And he gets nervous. And his mistress across the table starts to cry. And she goes, "I, I don't know who I am. I thought I was this guy's mistress, but she says, my life is comfortable, I travel the world, but it's like I live in a cage. And I go, yeah, it's a golden cage, it's a really pretty cage, but it's still a cage. And you're sleeping with your grandfather, for goodness sake, you know? (laughs) And then the mistress of the lawyer starts to cry. (laughs) And she goes, I want to do what you do. I want to do, I want to help people. I want to, you know, instead of just living your life for yourself. And and so both these gentlemen are distressed, as well as my board member who's calling. <laughs> so this billionaire pulls out his checkbook, goes, I'm going, how much money do you want? And we write you a check. And I go, Oh, sir, I'm not here for that. Uh, there's a greater treasure here, and that's you right here. I'm 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 not after your money, I'm after your heart after your heart. Well, we were ushered out and that's the last I ever saw of him. I was happy, my board member was not. But we can't compromise who we are. If, If you do, you will lose your way. All right? So who are we? Whose are we? And then, you know, for I became a, a physician assistant, and, and I don't think you have them here in America, where we're able to practice medicine as a physician, but under his authority. And I went to medical school at Stanford. My family was so excited that I left the mission field and came back and finished my education. Now I'm gonna make the big bucks. And as soon as I graduated, I took off and went to Uzbekistan. It's a brand new country. And the five stands that left the former Soviet Union when it fell apart. And I worked in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. And I'm a a white single woman in a Muslim culture. And single women my age in that culture, uh, they're harlots. And I'm an American. They hate that. And I'm a Christian. They hate that. It was rough working there. But I I was able to get into those closed countries with my medical credentials. And I went in as the medical officer for um, the embassies and, and for Peace Corps. And so I had diplomatic immunity. And when you come in and you work for an embassy, they allow you to ship in your home effects. They give you 2,000 pounds to crate up and ship in because you're living there. But I didn't have a home. I lived out of a backpack. I didn't have any furniture. So I shipped in 2,000 pounds of Uzbek Bibles into this Muslim country. And they couldn't search me because I had diplomatic immunity. But they did wonder what I shipped in when they would come to my house, and there's a mat on the floor <laughs> and no furniture. So, um, so I, uh, I would be invited to these diplomatic events, and um, they they would send someone to your house with uh, you would be in a tux and white gloves with an invitation to some cocktail party or some uh, some, some diplomatic event. And and the the invitations were beautiful. They were embossed in silver and gold calligraphy, and they would have the stamps and the seals and the insignias of the embassies that were making the invitation. And so because they were so pretty, and just the honor of being able to attend an event like that, I I would keep them kind of in my scrapbook. And, uh, and, And as you might imagine, it would be unthinkable to receive an invitation like this and then not to attend, right? So, so, I would go and, um, oh my goodness, I just, the, these are the places you meet lords and ladies and royalty and presidents and kings. And, and I found that they're just people too. In fact, one time um, I was sharing the gospel with an alcoholic that lived on the street, and he's drinking out of a paper bag. And later that evening, I was all dressed up, sharing the gospel with the vice president of a famous, world-renowned software company. And they were both asking the same questions. Basically, who am I and why am I here? You know. And I realized, oh, one's dressed in rags, and one's dressed in a nice Italian suit. But we're all just people underneath, really. It doesn't matter what language we speak or what color we are, if we're young or old or fat or skinny, it's just, we're just people. And we're all created in God's image. It's in there. So I think in one respect, we're all children of God. Some are lost sons and some are saved. and Some are lost daughters and some are saved daughters. So I'm in this uh, very posh, uh, these events, and, um, and yet, with all these, I'm going through the scrapbook I'm looking at all these invitations over the time I was there. But there was one invitation that I, I treasured more than them all. And it came from the grandest dignitary, the highest authority. It came from the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings himself. And you have it recorded in the Bible in Matthew 28, 18. It's, it's the Great Commission. And I want to set the stage for you a little bit. Imagine if you were there when Jesus was walking the streets of of Jerusalem. And and for three years, you saw all the miracles. You saw the the lepers healed and uh, people demonized, set free. You saw the food multiply and feed 5,000. You saw Jesus raise the dead to life again. And then... You saw the day he was arrested and, and you witnessed the crucifixion and him being laid into a tomb. Imagine if you experienced that. And then he rises from the dead. And I just want to read for you, because if, if, we just kind of read over it and we've, we forget how amazing these events were. In Matthew 28 too, it says there was a violent earthquake. Do you have earthquakes here? I'm from California, we have earthquakes. It says, it was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and was going to the tomb. He rolled back the stone and he sat on it. This, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. How do we know this? Because Matthew 27:55 says, many, Women were there, watching from a distance. So we have some eyewitnesses to this event. Okay, back to Matthew 28. The angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus. Anyone here looking for Jesus? Sometimes we look in the wrong place. They're expecting a dead Jesus in the tomb. So it goes on to say, uh, You were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here He is risen just as he said, come and see the place where he laid. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and he's going on ahead of you. And so these women became the first to declare to the world the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is not dead, that he's risen again. And once we encounter Christ, we too must share that news with others, shouldn't we? Just as these women did, just as The disciples did later before the Sanhedrin, just as the woman at the well did. So she has this encounter with Jesus as soon as she realizes who he is, that she is speaking with the Messiah. She leaves her water jug there, runs back to her village in Samaria, and draws her whole village back to Christ with her two-minute-old testimony. How are we doing in sharing the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, so fast forward. Jesus is risen from the dead. So this freshly resurrected from the dead Jesus, who multitudes saw crucified, who multitudes saw speared through his heart, he's out and about again. And that violent earthquake. Let's hear what happened. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. The earth shook the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life again. They came out of their tombs. Can you imagine that? I wonder what they were wearing. I mean, because they kind of wrapped them up like mummies. I mean, talk about zombies. That would be really scary. And for 40 days, they're appearing throughout Jerusalem. Maybe they were naked. I don't know. But uh, it had to be quite a sight. Where's the movie that features this scenario? They came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Wait, it gets even wilder, as if that were not enough. So again, imagine yourself there, post-resurrected Jesus, appearing to many. Had to throw the whole of Israel into chaos, eh? Hey? Then at the end, he's on the Mount of Olives. And I think it's 1 Corinthians 15. It says at one point that Jesus appeared to 500 disciples at one time. Not just anybody, not just casual followers, but disciples. Some scholars think that was on the Mount of Olives. And he's about to ascend into heaven. I don't know where the zombies went. No, they're not zombies. They were saints. But um, And he's giving them their invitation And he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. He called us to go, to share what we have, to declare the gospel, teaching them everything that I have taught you, to obey everything I have taught you, and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is my favorite part. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. So he's commissioning them, and he just said, but just wait until the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So imagine you're there, you're in this crowd, and he didn't just say, oh, just the men go and not the women, or just the young and not the old. Everyone there received that invitation to partner with him. And, and he's saying this as he's floating into heaven. All right, and then poof, he disappears. They're all standing there staring. And then two angels appear and basically like, what you waiting for? Get on with it. So they run back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine their joy after all these things? And, and yet, 10 days later, you know, they're meeting and praying. 10 days later, there's only 120 left. So if there were 500 there, 380 had already gone back to life as usual after seeing all that. And we never hear of them again. Nevertheless, the 120, they're twenty—they're they're praying, they're pressing in, and, and the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Spirit, comes like the sound of a rushing wind and cloven tongues of fire upon their head. And these are Hebrew Jews. I mean... They speak to the crowds at Pentecost. And those crowds were not just anybody. Those were Hellenist Jews. Those were Jews who had left Israel in past generations due to war or conquest or exile. And they grew up in Rome or in Syrophoenicia and other places. They had gone. But they were still devout Jews. And on those festivals, they would come back to bring their sacrifice to the temple to worship the Lord. And some of them, they didn't even speak Aramaic or Hebrew anymore. So the Holy Spirit didn't give those Hebrew Jews, um, He didn't give the crowds an understanding of their home language. Instead, He gives the Jews their languages. In Acts 2, it records 15 languages. And I don't even think that's all of them, because it doesn't name Greek, and that was the lingua franca of the day. So they're declaring the wonders of God in the languages of the people who had come. So, here we have the commissioning of Jesus from Jesus' lips himself on the Mount of Olives. They have the promise of the Father. They have, you know, they, they have the Great Commission. They have uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They speak the languages of the people, but they did not go. Instead, they made a megachurch in Jerusalem. And years go by. Eight years before the first Christian Jew shares with a Gentile, and that was Philip, who goes to Samaria, shares about Jesus. They come to the Lord. Later, Peter and John come to see what had happened, and, and they're baptized in the Spirit, but they don't plant a church. They go back to Jerusalem. And it's about 15 years before we find Peter in Joppa, just about 60 miles from Jerusalem, There to minister to the Jews. And he has the vision of the sheep coming down and and sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And he doesn't want to do it. You know how I know? He had the vision three times. Probably because he didn't obey the first time. He didn't obey the second time. But the third time he has this vision. He goes down. Cornelius' men are there. He goes to Cornelius' house. He preaches the gospel. They repent. They're baptized in the spirit. And Peter's amazed. But before he can get back to Jerusalem, word got back ahead of him. Now you remember when when Stephen was martyred, when they stoned him to death, it says a great persecution arose and they drove out the Hellenist Jews. The Hebrew Jews remained. The very next verse says a great number of priests joined the church and they brought the law of Moses right back. So yes, Jesus we're saved by grace, but you've got to be circumcised, but you've got to obey the laws of Moses. So there was some uh, compromise developing in the first Jerusalem church right then. So word got back, and when Peter comes home, it says that the brethren criticized him sharply for going into the house of a Gentile. Any Gentiles here? Just a few. I thought so. Me too. And Peter blames it all. God, he goes, what was I to do? You know, he had this vision. The men of Cornelius' house was there. They received the Lord. And guess what, guys? The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues just like us. Now, you would think that those in the Jerusalem church would go like, wow. They would be amazed that the Holy Spirit would come upon unholy Gentiles. But that's not what happened. It says they were amazed that the gift of repentance was given to Gentiles also. They didn't even believe Gentiles could be saved. That tells me the 120 weren't sharing this good news that they received. They were sharing amongst themselves, but they weren't sharing cross-culturally. They weren't sharing even with other Jews that were from another place. Is there a more ethnically diverse place than South Africa, with 11 national languages. What is God preparing you for? If we can learn to see past the color and and to honor one another's culture and personhood, wow, what could happen, eh? So the Great Commission, is, it's, it's an invitation to us all. It's an invitation to, to join our hearts and our hands with His and to jump into exploits that have eternal significance. It's his clarion call to draw the whole world back to him, back into the Father's embrace. It's, it's a 2,000 year old call to, to, and it's beckoning us to become one with him and his purposes and his plan to, to come into alignment with how he designed us and what he designed us to be. It's, it's a call that joined the ranks of 10,000 times 10,000. And thousands upon thousands of saints and martyrs our brothers and sisters who have gone on before us, who preached the gospel to their generation, and now this is our generation, and they have passed that baton into our hands. And we have so much more than they. Some linguists say that uh, up to 300 years ago, about 90% of the world's population was actually illiterate. Literacy was a skill, and you would go to a place to have them read your titles and deeds and such and write your letters for you. Literacy is kind of a new thing in, in human history. So all these people that we read about in the Bible, even if they had a Bible in their language, they couldn't read it. And yet... I have many Bibles and English translations. I have so much. I have the completed Bible. The New Testament saints, they didn't have the New Testament. It was written, you know, years later. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament. We have it in our language. We can read it. We we have freedom and technology and ability. We have 2,000 years of church history to encourage us that they didn't have. We have our own cloud of witnesses cheering us on. So what are we doing with the blessings that God has given to us? It's been passed into our hands. And it's this generation is our responsibility to reach, hey? And we must. It's starting with our neighbors and our classmates and our workmates. And yeah, you'll you'll get rejected. But what, I mean, there has never been a person on the planet more rejected than Jesus Christ, more misunderstood than Jesus Christ. So you will be in good fellowship with him. Philippians 3 talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. And there's something about suffering that really draws people together. And this is our only opportunity to suffer a little rejection or whatever comes, because in heaven there's no suffering there it's a way it's it's an element of relationship we can we can have with him now and if we don't have with him now we'll never have it in heaven <coughs> excuse me <coughs> so the great commission is an invitation to us all and You know, we too share in that call and we too are His sons and daughters and He's anointed us and positioned us. And In Acts chapter 17, it says that He determined the exact places where you were to be born. And He did this so we would seek Him and find Him. And you, I I suspect all of you here, have sought Him and have found Him. And now it's about drawing others into that fellowship. Amen. I hear you've been spending a little time in Colossians. <laughs> I love that book about the supremacy and the centrality of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this. There, uh, another book Paul wrote, Philemon, it's only one page long. And Paul is in prison and he ends up roommates with this runaway slave called Onesimus. And uh, the penalty for running away and for stealing in those days was death, right? Remember, Jesus died between two thieves on the cross. And, um, and Onesimus receives the Lord. And, and, and so Paul writes to Philemon. Um, does anyone know where Philemon's little house church was? Colossae. The church in Colossians started in Philemon's house. And so he's this uh, land owner and he has slaves and Onesimus runs away and the implication from the text is like Onesimus stole stuff before he ran off. He ends up in prison. He's probably facing death and, uh, and he gets saved. He gets right with God and then Paul writes back and appeals to Philemon. He says, release Onesimus. Count him as a brother now, not a slave. And if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. And then Paul says, you know, I am an apostle and I could command you to release uh, Onesimus. But he's, he rather appeal, he uses his authority to appeal in love rather than to manipulate through rank or a power play. So he's a, here's the apostle Paul appealing to him. And we don't know what happened in the book of Philemon, but we do in the book of Colossians. So I suspect Philemon did forgive him and receive him as a brother and likely discipled him because later on, Paul appoints Timothy as the leader of the church in Colossae. And when Timothy aged out according to church history, the next bishop of Colossae is Onesimus. He's mentioned right at the end of, of the book of Colossians. So this... Likely illiterate, peasant, slave, becomes the bishop of one of the most prominent churches in the, in, in the New Testament. Because if you're like me, it's like, well, who am I to do? What can I do? I'm just one person. And yet, though I live in the bush and work primarily with the poor, I've also had an opportunity to speak to f- four presidents now. And, and to lead one to Christ in such a way that he began to change national and international policy out of what he read in the Bible. And God can use any. He can use a donkey. He's done it. It's just like, God, here I am. What is that thing that you created me to do, or that purpose? Why did you make me a South African in this generation, in this time? What abilities or gifts did you put into my hands that I can employ for your kingdom? And I tell you, if you step into his purposes and his plans, there's a sense of soundness and wholeness and satisfaction no matter what happens. Because you're, you're like a puzzle piece and you found that place where you fit. But if you're chasing, um, like in my country, the American dream, it's a good dream compared to some, but it's not his dream. <laughs> God's dream will trump every dream. Amen. Well, why don't you stand up? Let's pray. Oh. Hmm. Uh, Father, your love melts us like wax. Now, would you take us into your nailed scarred hands and mold us and shape us just as a potter does the clay and and shape us and our destinies into what you have planned and purposed for each one of us and for us as a, a community of believers here in this church. Would you send us wherever you please and spend us however you please. May our one and only pleasure be to bring you joy, to, like the sun, moon, and stars, do exactly what you fashioned and designed us to do? Would we find that place of rest in just being who you made us to be? And in the areas where we're confused because of our culture or the economics of our day or the uncertainty of our future, Lord, we just want to lean back into your arms. Would you just enfold us? And give us an ever-increasing revelation of your great love for us. And with that, a revelation of, 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 of how does that practically then manifest itself in our lives and in our families and in our church body and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and with our schoolmates if there's any unrest in our heart, if there's a sense of unrestlessness or midlife crisis or whatever, Lord, or or, or gender crisis, whatever it is, help us to just lift up our eyes into your face and let go of all these things that worry us and the fears and the things that distress us. And rest in the confidence that, hey, you're big and you've got us. And I pray, Lord, just as this body matures in you, in in their walk with you, in their worship of you, in their revelation of who you are, that a life-giving, refreshing trickle (laughs) emerges from that place of sacrifice, from beneath the altar and, and crosses over that threshold. And runs throughout the parched places of this city and of this nation and of this continent. And brings refreshing wherever it goes. And brings new life and vitality. (coughs) And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.